Good morning. Today, we're going to talk about something that Jesus expects Christians to do, but I would venture a guess that the majority of us have never done it. We've never tried it. In fact, well, well hold on. I'll back up a second. Some of you had do- have done this. The thing that Jesus expects people who call themselves Christ followers to do, some of you have done this. You've been faithful in, in this, and it has grown a lot of fruit over the years, and that's awesome. Some of you have tried it, but you've kind of dabbled with it. It's just not been all that great, and so you've decided, you know what, that, that is just not for me. If I was a betting person, I would place money on the fact that you have probably never intentionally done this one thing that Jesus expects all of his followers to do, people who call themselves Christians. You've just not done it. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, uh, it's, it's kind of like going to the gym. That's why you've not done it. It's kind of like going, well, not just the gym. It's kind of like going to the spin class at 515. Have you ever done that? <laughs> why? Why would anybody ever do that? Because you go to the spin class at 515, which I've done maybe once. I know I've not done it twice. <laughs> you go there and, and the, the spin instructor, you know who I'm talking about, she's yelling at you. <laughs> Why am I paying for this? You go to the gym, she's yelling at you. For some reason, you have a heart monitor strapped to yourself and your heart rate is projected on the screen in front of the classroom because it's like a high-tech spin class. And she's yelling, push it to 95%. And then you're like, I can't. And I, you're just pedaling and you're trying to go fast. And, and, and by the sound of her voice, the entire world knows that you're not measuring up. Um, man, it's It's rough. What in the world are we talking about today that is like going to spin class that Jesus expects us to do? At least to try, to, to put, in, put in our life and, and make it a, a regular practice. What in the world does Jesus expect people, again, who call themselves Christians, people who are his followers, are his disciples, what is it that's going to a spin class? Like, it's like that? We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we, we're in a series uh, called Living from the Inside Out, where we're looking at, at Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're looking in to see what Jesus is talking about as he's preaching to a bunch of people on the side of a hill about Christianity. He, he's talking to them about, about God's kingdom, and he's telling them about what it looks like to be a, a Christian, a, a Christ, to live a Christ-like life. And today, we're going to find what Jesus expects his followers to do, that's like going to a spin class at 5.15 in the morning with that one crazy spin instructor where you just want to die. (laughs) And we find it today in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put, on, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to your followers that you are fasting, to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting. That's what we're talking about today. That's what Jesus expects of his followers and it's like being in the middle of a spin class at 5.15 in the morning. That's what so many Christians today, especially in Western culture, just simply don't do for religious reasons. 
Sure, we fast. We do intermittent fasting because we've heard it's very popular in culture right now that it's good for your health and it helps you lose weight and it makes you live longer and all those things. We might fast as like preparation for blood work because your doctor tells you to, but that's the, most, the worst thing possible. So you try to get the 7 a.m. appointment so you don't have to not eat all day long. Sure, we fast in you know, the start of the new year with some sort of like body cleanse to try to you know, kickstart things, but, but we don't fast the way that Jesus talks about fast, fasting. We don't fast the way that the Bible talks about fasting. You see, fasting is probably one of the most misunderstood practices in the Christian faith. Because fasting, the way that Jesus expects it, the way that the Bible talks about it, is not like any kind of fasting that's popular in culture right now. It's not like intermittent fasting. It's not the same thing as fasting for blood work or doing some sort of cleanse. You see, biblical fasting, the way the Bible talks about it, is abstaining from food as a response to God. Biblical fasting is a way of offering our whole selves to God and growing in our humility. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the kind of Christian who kind of cherry picks what I pay attention to in Scripture. I know there's a real temptation to look at the whole of the Bible and say, yeah, I like this. This can apply to my life. I don't like that. That just seems too extreme. I'm not going to pay any attention to that. But we can't pick and choose what we actually pay attention to in Scripture because all Scripture is God-breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as Paul talks about it. So, so let's not ignore God's word today, no matter how much it feels like just going to the gym. So we're going to start today. We're just going to start in looking at a brief overview of fasting in the Bible. Look at instances in the Bible in which fasting, abstaining from food for spiritual or religious reasons uh, as a response to God actually took place. Now, if you Google fasting in the Bible, you're going to find all kinds of things. You're going to find over 70 places in the Bible that talk about fasting. You're going to find categories for reasons for fasting and, and subcategories and sub-subcategories. I randomly just thought it was interesting. I asked ChatGPT this week, how many reasons does the Bible give for fasting? And it said there are 12 reasons that the Bible gives for fasting. But then it qualified that and it said, but these are only some of the reasons that the Bible gives for fasting. 12. We're not going to spend hours looking at 70 verses. We're not going to take an hour for every one of the instances the Bible says you should fast for we are going to look at a general overview. We're going to look at three categories that I think if we took all 70 instances of fasting, if we took all 12 of the categories that ChatGPT talks about, and we kind of boil it down, I believe we see fasting take place for three different reasons in Scripture. And the first one is this, fasting as a response to God's presence. In fact, the very first instance of fasting in the Bible is Moses. And he uh, fasted after he led all of the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember that story? Uh, there's the parting of the Red Sea. They're wandering through the desert. They're trying to figure out what it looks like to be in a relationship with God, to be a nation under their heavenly father. And then Moses goes on to this mountaintop, and he, he has a, an experience with God. Exodus 34, verse 38 says, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. 
What? 40 days and 40 nights? Why would he not eat bread or drink water? See, God and Moses were having this like cool mountaintop experience and he was hanging with God and and what was his response? What was the response to chilling with God on a mountain? It was, it was fasting. And the same is true with Jesus. So we see in the New Testament, Jesus was baptized. He had this really interesting experience. We could talk about this for an entire day where the God the Father was talking. God the Holy Spirit was descending like a dove. And then you have Jesus, who's God the Son. You really can't get more of an experience with Jesus or with, with God himself than in that where all three persons of the Trinity are just chilling together at a river. Uh, so Jesus is getting baptized and Jesus does something after this. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of the presence of God, he left the Jordan where he was baptized, and he was led by the Spirit to the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing for 40 days for the, during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I, I love that. So, Jesus, you had a really powerful interaction with God. Yeah, you, you, you had this experience. You were in the presence of your heavenly father. What do you do? You fast. And, and the detail here that he didn't eat for 40 days uh, and the end of them, he was hungry. Of course he was. Like, why would, the, why would Luke put that detail in here? And I think it's extremely strategic because it shows that, yes, Jesus is not only God in human form, Jesus is fully human. He got hungry. He experienced real human emotions. And I love that. I mean, just as a side note, I love that our Savior knows exactly what it's like to be human. Our Savior knows what it is like to experience hunger. I, I bet he got angry. <laughs> like, I, I bet he experienced pain. And I love that the person we look to for salvation for life knows what you and I are dealing with today. And that, that's just a side note, and I think maybe that's why Luke included that detail. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all having an experience. Jesus gets baptized. What does Jesus do? As a response to experiencing God's presence, he fasted. And then before we go any further, I just want to clarify. So Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. Are all the other 70 instances in the Bible 40 days and 40 nights? Is that what Pastor Tim's going to ask us to do? To, no, 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 no. The majority of fasting in Scripture is not 40 days, 40 nights. That's just Moses, you know, this really cool guy, and that's, that's Jesus. But, but don't, don't worry. You can just take a deep breath right now. <laughs> so fasting is a response to being in the presence of God. The second reason I think we see in Scripture is fasting when people understand their sin. When Jonah was sent to the people of Nineveh, uh, well, first of all, he didn't think they'd repent. <laughs> he thought that they would just be arrogant in their sin and keep living the way they, they did. But they actually listened to Jonah's message and they responded to God. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, if I can find it, there's a lot of verses. There we go. Jonah 3, 5. It says, the Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed 
And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth. What, what, is, what is sackcloth all about? Like, what, what, what are we doing with that? It's simply a way to demonstrate that, the, that they were grieving and that they were mourning. That they had, they had started, you know, putting their life in this direction, and they realized that they were going the wrong way. They were understanding the sin that they had in their lives, and sackcloth, sackcloth uh, was a way to show that they were grieving the directions that they were going. And so they understood their sin. And what did they do out of a response to the sin they saw in their lives? They fasted. And then in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, the people of God were confronted with the fact that they were going the wrong way. In 1 Samuel 7, 6 says, on that day, they fasted and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And so what did God's people do when they understood that they had sin in their lives, that they weren't living the way that God wanted them to live? They fasted. Now, these were just two of the many instances in the Bible where individuals or whole people groups, entire nations, would fast as a response to the sin that they were faced with. The fact that they understood that, man, I've been trying to live my life this way. Now I know, and now I understand that I do not measure up to the law of God, and therefore, I'm going to fast. So we have fasting as a response to God's presence in their lives. We have fasting as a response to understanding the sin in their lives. And then the third reason I think we see in Scripture for fasting is that fasting happens as a response to tragedy. In, in Psalm uh, 35, verse 13, David talks about there's these uh, people that he was he knew, and they became ill, and it says in verse 13, I put on sackcloth, there's that mourning piece of it again, and I humbled myself with fasting. And then in, Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 13, Saul died. And then we see the people of Jabesh Gilead, they responded in mourning through fasting in verse 31, 13. Or chapter 31, verse 13, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. See, not 40. See, that's an instant. It's not always 40. <laughs> they fasted seven days. And so the people of God, and people in general who, who were responding to tragedy in their lives, what do they do? They fast. Those are our three reasons. Three reasons, I think, if we boil it down, 70 or so verses, 70 or so instances, what are, why do we fast? We fast out of response to God's presence. We fast out of an understanding of our sin. And we fast because there's tragedy that happens in life. And if I were you, right now, I'd be thinking, yeah, cool. <laughs> That's great and all. But those are all the Old, de Old Testament dead people. Like, that has nothing to, well, and Jesus, and Jesus, but he's Jesus. So, of course, he did things like that. Like, of course, he fasted. But there's no actual application for our lives today. That's just the ancient world. And if you're thinking that, you might, you might be right. But what if there's actually a real-life application for us today? 
You see, I find it very interesting that in all of these instances, the, the three reasons that we have for fasting, that the fasting is a response to God's presence, fasting is a response to the understanding of sin, and fasting is a response to tragedy. All of these three things, I think, are connected in a pretty cool way because all of these three responses, when you boil them down at their core, are simply an act of humility. You see, when we're faced with the reality of God's presence, I can't help but acknowledge that God is God and I am far from it. That's humility. When faced with an understanding of sin in my life, I have a deep understanding of the fact that I have not arrived. I do not measure up. I am in need of repentance. That's humility. And when faced with a tragedy, if I understand that God in his infinite knowledge created the world a certain way, sin has messed it up and we are dealing with a world that is full of brokenness and tragedy and death and dying and tears. And my own sin is a contributing factor of all of this. Humility. And here's where it gets even better. The biblical terms for to fast and to humble ourselves before God are virtually equivalent. And so fasting at its core really is simply an act of humility. And part of the reason I think that fasting and humility are so closely related is because fasting is humiliating. It reveals the extent to which our pride, our peace, our comfort in life is tied to the pleasures of eating. Do you know what I mean? You come home at the end of a long, hard day of work, and where do you go first? The fridge. <laughs> You're at a joyful celebration. Somebody just got married, and there's a reception. What is at the reception? Food. You're dead tired. It's night. You have are, you're having problems sleeping. What do you do? You eat. So much of our human emotion and our emotional stability is tied to food. And to stop eating for a day or a meal or 40 days, I think is humiliating because it's going to show us just where our source of life comes from. And the fact that often it's not really God. Author John Stott, he's a biblical scholar, he says this, and it's such a profound quote, but it's so simple. The purpose of fasting is to express our humility before God. That's it. It's a discipline, it's a practice that is all about recognizing God's authority in our, our lives and growing in our humility as we seek to submit to him. And I don't know about you, but I, I believe that that, even though, yeah, a bunch of old, dead, Old Testament people were doing it, and Jesus, I think it's still applicable for our lives today. Now, again, I, if I were you, I'd be thinking, yes, Pastor Tim, that's great, but can't we grow in our humility in other ways other than not eating food? Does it have to involve fasting? Sure. Could, yeah, absolutely. We can grow in our humility in a lot of ways. But, but check out Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Well, what, is, what does that have to do with fasting? <laughs> Did you hear Paul's word choice here? 
offer your bodies. So, so often I think that the church today is really impacted by revivalistic uh, movements throughout history where it's all about the heart. You gotta give your heart to Jesus. You gotta make sure that your heart is right before God. It's all, we gotta make sure that we're offering our heart to God. And yes, that is so important, but, but there's more. Like there's more than just your, your heart. Or we've been impacted by, you know, um, enlightenment movements throughout history, and the emphasis is on we got to make sure that we're thinking right, that our theology is right in our thought life, that we're, we're honoring God with our mind, we're growing with our, our mind, our, our minds are being transformed, and yes, that's important, that's biblical, but that's not enough. God desires both body and soul to be offered to him in humble worship. We're not like the Gnostics of the early or the late first century who believe that the body and the soul are the separate entities and the body is just this inherently bad, sinful thing and there's no hope for it and our soul is the only thing that will be resurrected, the only thing that is worth saving. No, when Jesus came to earth, he came in a body. He resurrected his body and at some point our bodies will be resurrected as well. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says our bodies are a temple and so what we do with our bodies matters. And so when we offer our whole selves to God in view of God's mercy, as Romans chapter 12 talks about, another way to say it is if we offer our whole selves to God as a response to who he is, as a response to his presence, as a response to our understanding of sin, as a response to tragedy, if we offer our whole selves to God, we're going to continue to grow in our humility. We're going to continue to grow in our submission. We're going to continue to grow in our relationship with God. And so fasting, in the biblical sense of abstaining for food for spiritual reasons, is one of the ways we can grow in our relationship with God. I think that is super cool. And if I were you, <laughs> right now, I'd be thinking, yeah, Pastor Tim, that's super cool. Okay. That's, yeah, I get the humility part. I get the fasting. Like, I get, you know, but don't you know, Pastor Tim, fasting is not even a command in Scripture. Like, we're commanded to love God and love others. Like, I can get on board with that. We're commanded, like, we're told we need to pray. We need to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we're, that's a command. There's a command to, you know, get baptized and, and, and go public with your faith. But fasting is not commanded throughout anywhere in the Bible. And my response to that is, yeah, you're right. You got me. You are such, you have such good questions today. Man, you got, you're on top of it. You, you've got this. It is no, there's no clear command in Scripture to fast. But it is expected. For starters, Jesus not only gave us the example of fasting in the New Testament, but he talked about it in such a way that makes it pretty clear that he expects us to fast today. Remember our passage today in Matthew chapter 6. I'll read it one more time. It says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Twice here, Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. 
There's an assumption that it's just going to be done. Scholars agree that Jesus is not condemning fasting here. He's actually condemning the pretentiousness that comes with, with fasting to make sure that everyone else sees that you're fasting. He's forbidding, uh, you know, sin or any sign that fasting is going on. But why? Because what began as a spiritual self-discipline in the Old Testament has been, by the religious leaders, manipulated into an occasion for self-righteousness. And Jesus knew that the human heart is so mixed with motives that the desire to seek God in the middle of the fast will be overtaken by the desire to be seen and praised by others almost every single time. So there's an expectation when, when you fast. And then later in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is talking to some others who approach him and say, hey, why aren't your disciples fasting? In chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. So Jesus says, When you fast, in our passage today, and then he tells these people in Matthew chapter 9 that his followers will fast once he leaves them, once he ascends to heaven. I don't know about you, but this seems pretty clear, that Jesus understood that fasting would have a normal place in the life of a Christian. One more time, if I were you, and if I were sitting here listening to this today, I'd be thinking, yeah, Pastor Tim, you, that's great, Sure. There's this like humility thing. I get that. I can get on board with that. I understand it's like a growing and humility thing because yeah, when I've tried it once, it was humiliating. Um, but, but these words couldn't have meant that Jesus expects us to fast today, right? Well, I think if Jesus' expectations weren't meant to be followed, then Christians for 2,000 years have gotten this wrong. In Acts and in the, the New Testament writings, there are several references to the apostles fasting, none the least of which is the apostle Paul. When he has an interaction with Jesus or he has a personal interaction, like he, he is in the presence of God, he responds with fasting. And, and then, which is great, he actually mourns his sin and responds with fasting. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the church is described, they're just having a church service, and the author of Acts, Luke, he's describing the church service, and he says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Like if Luke was describing our church service today, while they were reading God's word, singing songs, and, and fasting, because that's just what church does. Like that's the expectation. Christians have understood this then for thousands of of years, Christ followers from the first century to the 21st century throughout the world have not only believed in fasting, they've practiced it. Protestant reformers were on board. Martin Luther and John Calvin praised fasting's value and encouraged its use within the church. Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s in Massachusetts, he recommended fasting for everyone who went to his church. And John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he wouldn't ordain a pastor if that pastor didn't fast twice a week. 
In fact, here's a quote from, from John Wesley. It says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who have entirely left off, fast, left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in a month. Now, if John Wesley was here today, he'd say that to, about the American church, I think, wow, they don't even fast twice a month. They don't even fast twice a year. For some reason, we've left the practice of fasting off the table. The Christian church has swung so far away from fasting that we just don't do it. I don't know if it's out of fear of like experientialism or like it's too associated with Eastern religions, but, but let me tell you this, it's not every Christian. There are a lot of Christians throughout the world who fast, especially outside of the U.S. American culture. But we've lost it. Some dismiss it as an Old Testament practice. Some explain it away as no longer relevant. And in, in fact, it's estimated that non, followers of non-Christian religions are twice as likely as Christians to fast for religious reasons. And you've asked a lot of great questions today. You really have. It's now my turn. Why? Why have we lost this? when it's so clearly expected by Jesus. Now, confession time. I'm not one of the Christians who has made fasting a part of my normal life. I'm not. But after being assigned this passage by Pastor Rex, <laughs> I've tried it. I'm not going to tell you about it because Jesus says don't tell anyone about it. But I've tried it. And I don't want to be the kind of Christian who wants to ignore Jesus' teaching anymore. I don't think we can be the kinds of Christians who cherry-pick what we pay attention to in Scripture. We can't ignore the New Testament example of fasting just as much as we can't ignore Jesus' teaching about how fasting should be a part of every Christian's life. Biblical fasting, which again is abstaining from food as a response to God, is really a way of offering our whole selves to God in order to grow in our humility. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you want to take Jesus' teachings seriously? Do you want to grow in your humility? Do you want to experience what the 5th century church leader, St. Leo, described as fasting, which is giving strength against sin. It, fasting represses evil desires. It repels temptation, it humbles pride, it cools anger, and fasting fosters all the inclination of the goodwill. It sounds like a pretty powerful practice. Try fasting. Okay, Pastor Tim, like I hear you, I'm convinced, I've understood the whole like, okay, expectation, humility, like I, I, I get it, I'm intrigued. Fasting may be important, but how do I go about doing it? That's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Let me say it again. Biblical fasting is abstaining from food as a response to God. So maybe, maybe just one meal a week, maybe 12 hours, maybe twice a week, sunup to sundown, maybe 24 hours at a time. Try fasting. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And many Christians throughout history have practiced a sun-up to sundown fast twice a week. In fact, that's what the Pharisees did. 
and then the Christians took it, and they changed the days just so they wouldn't be like the Pharisees. But it's up to you. It's not one size fits all. But, but I want to say this, and I want to be ex- extremely clear in this. Because biblical fasting is abstaining for food from food, it, if you've struggled with disordered eating over the years, I just need you to know you need to talk to a counselor first before you engage in this, because the temptation is that this can go off the rails pretty quickly. And because biblical fasting is abstaining from food, if you have medical reasons where fasting would not be appropriate for you right now, I need you to just talk to your doctor and see if, if there's a way that you can make this happen in, in a way that works for you. But if those aren't your categories, I would just simply encourage you this, follow Jesus' teaching and try fasting. And here are four tips, four simple, simple things that I think might be helpful for you. And the first is this, start small. Not too many fasts in the Bible are 40 days. Don't do it. (laughs) Start small. You've got to walk, you've got to crawl before you walk, you've got to walk before you run, and your body will need to adjust to to fasting gradually. So start where you are, not where you think you should be, and start with one meal. Maybe work your way up to 12 hours, maybe even 24 hours. Maybe you want to do the 12 hours twice a week kind of thing. See what works for you. It's not one size fits all. And here's the second idea. Slow down and pray. You see, during a fast, you should be taking the time that you're spending shopping, you're spending cooking, you're spending eating, and use it for prayer. Open up your Bible. Read God's word. Focus on the bread of life as a replacement for the food that you're not eating. There's a Dallas Willard quote um, that I think is, is brilliant and kind of takes this idea of, of fasting outside of the typical intermittent fasting ideas and, and puts it into a biblical perspective. And that quote is this, if it's on the screens. I don't have it written down. There it is. Fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding, him, finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. Through it, we learn by experience that God's word to us is a life substance, that, is, that it is not food or bread alone that gives life, but also the words that proceed from the mouth of God. We learn that we, too, have meat to eat that the world does not know about. Fasting unto the Lord is therefore feasting, feasting on him and doing his will. That's really what takes it from popular intermittent fasting and and makes it a biblical fast. It's the intentional slowing down and placing ourselves before God in such a way that God can grow us. True fasting is understanding that our satisfaction comes from God and not food. True fasting is understanding that, that God is the source of life and emotional sustenance, not Not food. So, slow down and pray. Here's the third tip. Resist the urge to judge your experience. You're going to want to judge what's going on way too soon. You're going to want to, like, the second you start fasting, you're going to think, oh, man, this isn't fun. I'm going to stop. Like, you're going to stop prematurely because you're going to start thinking about it too early. Just fast and offer it to God. Let it be what it is. Think about it later. Think about what, what was good. What did I learn? What was God showing me? How could I do it differently next time? What, what other temptations arose? 
But just don't judge it prematurely. Let the experience happen. Offer your fast to God. And the fourth tip for you if you want to start try, trying to fast is drink a lot of water. It seems like a dumb thing to say, but it's super important. Drink a lot of water. You got to stay healthy through this and make sure you're doing fasting in a way that, that isn't going to put you at risk. So I think as we close, I would say, like, imagine if modern-day Christians, like Christians throughout history, understood the expectation of fasting. What if we fasted as a means to put our whole selves before God in humility? I think we would grow like one who grows when they go to a spin class. You know, I hate spin class. I'm not joking, I've been once. I, I actually really hate it. Like, I really don't like the experience of somebody yelling at me while I'm trying to, like, do something that's good for myself. You're making me feel, I don't, I don't like, maybe that's for you, that's awesome, that's great. But I know that when I did go, and when I do other things now that are similar, I'm actually going to grow through the process. In the same way, I don't like fasting. I don't like the way that it makes me feel. Being hangry is a real thing, but I do know that when I do it, I'm going to grow. If I do it the way that Jesus expects me to do it, the reward will be worth it. And I think the reward, as I see it, is not an immediate blessing. It's not a guaranteed answer to prayer. The reward, as we respond to the reality of God in our lives, as we re repent our sin, as we respond to tragedy and, and understand that God is God and we are not, I believe the reward is simply an under understanding of who God is. I think the reward is a deeper, closer walk with Jesus. I love the song that Ben mentioned earlier, the lyrics, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're a person, that is your reality. That is the human experience. Left to our own devices, we're going to wander. We're going to walk our own way. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to act in such a way that messes everything else up. And, and God, in his infinite wisdom, provided a way for us to be right with him through Jesus. And he provides us with things like prayer, going to church, being in community, fasting, as a way to correct course as a way to say, yes, I am prone to wander, but I'm going to put discipline in my life in such a way that helps me correct course and respond to the God who has graciously rescued me from myself. So fasting results in a deeper awareness of God's presence. Fasting results in more gratitude for his forgiveness of our sin. And I think that when we fast we'll have a growing understanding that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what's happening to us, God is God, and he is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today acknowledging that this is a topic that is, one, not talked about all that often in church. <laughs> There's a lot of... Um, a lot of popular beliefs about fasting right now, and that's great, but in some capacity, God, we, we need to re-acknowledge what fasting is really all about, and that is you. 
So God, I ask that you would grow us through this practice. You would help us to see you more through this practice, that you would help us to understand the depths of your grace through this practice. And God, if there's people here today that are like, yeah, I can't fast because of, you know, past history of uh, emotional things going on in my life, and I also, I can't fast because of, because of medical reasons, God, I ask that you would help us to understand what other things we can abstain from other than food that will produce similar results. Things in our lives that we've put up on a pedestal, things in, a li- in our lives that we look at as God other than you. So God, we ask that you would help us to take everything we have, our, our food, our lives, our technology, every, everything, we just, we offer it to you, we lay it at your feet, and we ask you through this to grow us, to help us course correct and follow after you because you've provided a way for us to do that. So God, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your expectation, we thank you that you are with us. No matter what's going on around us, we thank you that you're God and you're good. Amen.